Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast, the podcast all about the good, the bad and the ugly of British policing. If you're interested in how policing works and you want to hear some incredible people talking about what they did in their policing careers, then this is definitely the podcast for you. Sometimes we cover some pretty gory or distressing subjects and there may be a bit of swearing from time to time. So probably best to keep the kids out of earshot. Right, here we go. Hello folks, Ian here. Welcome to episode 89 of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. Very nice to be back again. I just looked at episode 88. I can't believe it was back in October 23 and here we are in February 24. Uh, yeah, lots happened in that time. Uh, all good. So as you probably know, I uh, reached a rather frustrating uh, period in my working life. And uh, net result of that was that I binned off uh, the things that I've been doing. Best, one of the best decisions I ever made. And uh yeah, I went back to looking for full-time employment again as an employee. So if you know, if somebody had said to me, and this is the thing, you know, I'd say, I'd say to anyone who left the police after a long career, or for that matter, anyone who's left any organisation after a long career, and uh, and they they say, well, I'm never going to do this again, or I'm never going to do that again. Well, I'd say, well. Just hold that thought because um, you might feel differently in the future. And I always said that I would probably never be an employee again. And um, you know what? There's a lot to be said for being an employee, an awful lot. And uh, so I I applied for various jobs and eventually got a job. I'm now uh, a principal consultant for a large organization and uh, very much enjoying it. Uh, great team of people, a uh, really fantastic company, and uh, doing some really interesting work. So yeah, uh, really good decision. So uh, I suppose this is like a bit of advice to people who are thinking of leaving the police, who have left the police, or for that matter, any organization after a long period of time, is that, um, being an employee has a lot to be said for it. Uh, you've got uh, interesting work. You have uh, you're part of something that's bigger than yourself. You have a regular income. Uh, you have a reason to kind of get out of bed in the morning. It gives you some structure to your day, uh, some structure to your week, and. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think anyone who knows me well will know that uh, the way my work life was before uh, I started working in, for my current employer, uh, it wasn't uh, doing me any favors. So, so yeah, I really enjoyed being back at work again, and uh, yeah, get a get out of bed in the morning with a spring in my step, and uh, lots of difficult, complex problems to solve. Uh, so yeah, it definitely beats retirement, and I think uh, I think retirement um, for those. I mean, 
each to their own, each to their own, isn't it? But I do think that anyone who thinks that retirement is a good thing is probably um, going to have a bit of a rude awakening because uh, very quickly a lack of purpose, a lack of structure, a lack of social contact, uh, all of that stuff starts to have quite a negative impact on people's mental health. So, so yeah, so my, my experience or my advice to those who are thinking of packing up work for good is don't. I think it's a uh, not a great idea. I think probably if you're in a situation where you, uh, your kids, for example, uh, are grown up and you have no particular reason to stay where you are and your partner is also um, retired and you have complete financial freedom and you can go off maybe on travels around the world or something like that. Well, I think I'd say that's probably the only exception uh, where I think it's probably not a bad idea. But if you have to stay at home and uh, your kids maybe have got some growing to do as mine do and your partner's still working, then being retired on your own is not a good thing. So there you go. I'm going to stop lecturing you as if I'm your dad. Right. So in this episode, I have the great pleasure of chatting to Dave Marshall. Now, Dave, bless him, has only gone and written a book all about how uh, damaged the police service is. And uh, I felt so happy when I saw his book because I just thought, oh, thank God, I'm not the only person now who's written a book about how damaged the police service is in the UK. And um, I don't know whether uh, my book inspired Dave or not, um, but the bottom line is that he's written a book. And we'll talk about that during our chat. Uh, Dave is a very, very recently retired uh, chief superintendent. So again, really encouraging that someone who has reached a senior rank in the organisation is prepared to speak uh, honestly about the way that he sees policing in the UK. And uh, yeah, it was really interesting to uh, listen to him talking about his career and his reasons for writing the book. So without further ado, I'll get into the interview. Hello. Hey, there he is. How are you? How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Nice to meet you. Yeah, are you too. Uh, you look, you've got a bit of police, I can see a bit of police memorabilia on the walls there. I think everyone's got that picture, haven't they? That, well, that I, 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 went through, uh, I went through phases of being... Um, sort of periodically very proud and followed by very embarrassed by things like commendation certificates. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I kind of, um, I remember when I was first promoted to inspector, I was like, you feel like you're Johnny Big Bollocks, don't you? Whenever you oh, yeah. become an inspector for the first time and you just want everyone to know how flipping brilliant you are. So I used to put all my certificates and commendations up in my, office wall mm. and then and then periodically you look at it and think i must look like a right dick with all this stuff <laughs> <laughs> behind yeah. me 
Yeah, but you're not you you don't you don't see it at the time because you're so bloody absorbed in um, <laughs> in your in your grandeur. I mean, it's still quite raw for me because I've um I've only um left in the last few weeks, so um I I know a lot of a lot of ex cops who will have display. I I haven't actually got this, but we'll have displays of you know old hats and epaulets and all that sort of stuff, right? No, I, I don't think I'll ever be that person. It's like a police museum and some of that. Yeah, ones, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, the, so, yeah, the picture was a, a present from a missus, so I kind of feel obliged to have it. Well, there was a time, wasn't there, when nobody w with any sense anyway, depending on where you lived, I suppose, nobody with any sense would ever display a load of policemen memorabilia in their house in case yeah. you've got your house screwed, in which case... You just, it was going to get absolutely trashed, wasn't it? You know. Well, well, that's right. I mean, all I all I've got in here, well, aside from that picture, which would probably give it away, is uh, over my bookcase a picture of me at Tully Allen back when I was like eighteen, um, which is the only police picture I think I've got in here. Um, other other than that, uh, I suppose if they re raided the upstairs. And went into the loft and found the box with some, some bits and bobs. Then, if they were that desperate, Unlikely but, but yeah, that. so it's so. But listen, to... it's uh, really nice to meet you. And um, yeah. you know, I know we've kind of um, commented on each other's postings on social media over the years, and um, yeah, I think it's been it's been obvious to me that you know we're kindred spirits. We've got a lot of. Um, you know stuff in common really so uh so yeah nice to meet you and uh so you literally are fresh out of the uh the police box how's your first few weeks of decompression going yeah i think it's um it's always quite strange when you've been when you've been doing the job for for so many years and you become um as many people will say a, a little bit institutionalized don't you? and you it, it just becomes part of who you are I mean, I started when I was 17 years of age as a, a fresh-faced police cadet and have been doing this ever since. So I suppose I'm still in decompression um, decompression uh, sort of territory where I'm, I am adjusting to not... I mean, I think that the, the part where you, you hand over your warrant card and you're no longer a, a police officer is quite a... Um, it's a sober moment when you. I don't think that I, I don't. It. I probably shouldn't admit this, Dave, but I, I don't think I ever did hand over my warrant. <laughs> well, I was asked. I was asked to. Maybe that says something about me. I'm going yeah. to get. A, I'm going to get a knock on the door. Now, aren't <laughs> you've got it. You've got it in a frame somewhere, haven't you? That's... <laughs> you never know. You never know when these things come in handy. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but you, but yours. I don't know how long ago you retired, but you, yeah, it might, it might be well out of date. Uh, Anyway, tend to uh, oh, change yeah. these things up. Wrong chief constable's name on it. Wrong chief, I'll be honest. An eagle-eyed traffic officer. He says laughing, yeah. Dave says laughing nervously, you know. Yeah, no, oh, no, no, no. Um, I, I, so, that, so that was, I suppose that was, um, that was quite sobering. But I, I have, um, that said, so still in that period of adjustment, but no regrets you know i i haven't mm. actually spoken to many people who haven't made the decision mm. um have had any regrets about it and for me and i'm sure we'll come on to discuss this it was quite it's actually quite a straightforward uh, decision yeah mm. i did give it a bit of thought and 
consideration that anyone does. How many years did you do in the end? 31, just coming up for 31. Right. So, yeah, it's a... And you finished up, uh, you finished up as Chief Sup, yeah? Yeah, Temporary Chief Super at uh, the college. So that was um, the last sort of year uh, of my uh, career. Mm. And um, as I suppose in some ways, uh, it's it's helpful to have that exit path where Mm. you're not going from being sort of full on in a I was an operations superintendent and full on in that role one day to yeah. retire the next. So in that yeah, sense, no, you had a bit of a soft landing, didn't you? Really, yeah, but uh, yeah. yeah, we'll come on to come on to talk about that in a bit. Um, but uh, yeah, so as I tend to do, as you probably know, it's always nice to um, go right back to square one, really, uh, in terms of your early career reasons for joining and all of that kind of stuff. Um, sort of. Um, uh, spoiler alert i have started reading your book mm. and um we'll come on to talk about that as well so f- well done well done you for uh um for doing that and uh yeah really looking forward to you know later on talking about that about your experience of doing it and your motivations and and your thoughts generally but for, for the purposes of now if, if we if we go back to sort of first principles joining the job reasons for joining etc um, even though I've read that already, but others have. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I I, I joined. Um, I suppose nowadays it would be considered to be very very young. Um, so I joined back in 1992 as a a police cadet. Um, in what was Grampian Police before Police Scotland came along. Um, so I joined as a cadet at 17. Um, why did I join? I suppose uh, a bit cliche, but it had to always been the job I'd wanted to join. I couldn't remember from a very young age and right through both both primary and secondary school want to do anything else. Uh, I wasn't from a police family, so I wasn't following in the footsteps of anyone. I was the first to join the, the force. And probably the inspiration had been, uh, as it is for a lot of people, I'd been seeing it on TV, watching TV, watching movies. Um, I, would, I would like to sit here and say that I had an overwhelming sense of public service, but mm-hmm. I don't think as a 17-year-old you quite have that, and it'd be quite... Um, yeah. It would be quite untrue to say. So um, 17 years old, cadetship lasts about a year. Um, and during that time, you're exposed to a little bit of policing, but actually it's mostly exposure to um, sort of wider community uh, sort of life, if you like. You know, you mm. get exposed to some charities um, you do some Duke of Edinburgh stuff. You go in placements to other emergency services. Um, you go in placements to, to institutions like um, uh, care homes, you know, mm-hmm. just to give you um, a, a sort of wider perspective so that you've got, particularly at that age where up until that point, you've really been quite sheltered, you've been in school, yeah. uh, and then suddenly you're wearing a police cadet's uniform. And then towards the tail end of the cadetship, having that had that wider exposure um, to to the public and to what what made up the communities uh, where I was going to be working, you go on a as operational placement uh, for the last six months, mm. and mine was to uh, the far uh, reaches of the forest area in the northeast uh, of of Grampian Police, so the north northeast of the northeast, if you like, mm-hmm. uh, in, in a place called Peterhead which was um, a notoriously busy posting. Um, it That's was a big fishing, fishing port? 
it was it was the biggest at one point it was the biggest one of the biggest if not the biggest uh, white fishing ports in Europe so mm. it was it was huge um uh, a lot of money so a lot of wealth but but also um quite a big sort of rich poor divide that mm. probably I didn't quite appreciate those sort of younger younger years just how pronounced that was but when you look back on it it was quite pronounced and there was a lot of young people who had a lot of money so the fishing industry was was the the the, the, the sort of biggest employer of of mm. the young up there and uh, you had a lot of young young men uh, and it was young men in those days in the, on the boats who were coming off mm. uh, coming back on shore uh, off the boats with a lot of um, mm. cash in their back pockets yeah and and that that uh, opened the door up for quite a bit of criminality and talking about the early 90s where you know heroin was becoming uh, more of a thing mm. and the drug trade certainly found its way into the northeast of Scotland and and, and into Peterhead and really that was our sort of bread and butter so I spent uh, the next uh, seven eight years there as a as a cop. So you um, went straight back there after straight after back. training school. Yeah, right. So so, so obviously when you finished your cadet um, training, then you would have gone in and started your, um, you know, recruit training uh, in the same way that everybody else did, I suppose. Yeah. Um, together with people who didn't have the benefits of the cadet stuff, I suppose would, would that be right? Yeah, that, that's that's right. So you. Um, you went to the uh, the Scottish Police College, uh, Tully Allen Castle. Um, you had been there, you know, a handful of times as a cadet, just by way of familiarisation. But you still had to go through that same recruit training experience. So yeah, went there uh, on being appointed a, a constable. And those days, you went on two stints to, to Tully Allen. So the first stint in your first year of your probation was um, for ten weeks, mm-hmm. and then in year two, you went for uh, a further eight weeks. But it was it was back in those days. I mean, it's changed. Um, some would say for for the better. Others would maybe dispute that point. But back in those days, it was very much run as a, a, a like a lot of the training uh, centres in those days, as you you'll know, was run very much around a sort of military, very disciplined uh, mm-hmm. uh, environment. Um, you know, you were slept in in dormitories with uh, sort of eleven other guys. Um, uh, you were told, you know, when you would get up in the morning, when you would go to your bed, you know, when you would have your meals, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which actually, as a as an eighteen year old, didn't particularly phase me at all. Um, probably because I'd come through the cadets. But for a lot of people, that that sort of um, discipline factor um, was, I think, quite bit of a shock. Quite a, quite a shock to people mm. who'd come from a, a, a the, the only the only people who normally got it were ex military, of course. Mm. Who were quite yeah, comfortable. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny, isn't it? How the, the military, ex-military types, and every class had a few of them, didn't they? And our class captain was an ex. Uh, I'm not sure what he was. He was an ex NCO and something or other. And then we had mm-hmm. we had a lad called Vince, who was ex Grenadier Guards, and he used to help everybody pull their boots and you know show them <laughs> how to how to iron the trousers and do all that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. But um, so let's talk about about policing somewhere like Peterhead. So this is the thing that really fascinates me about police and really fascinates me about speaking to people on this podcast because it's uh, policing, in many ways, there's a lot of commonality in policing, isn't there? A lot of the things that police officers do, regardless of where they are in the country, is is quite similar. But the local peculiarities and the demographics are always very different, aren't they? And 
particularly, you know, in, in my head, I'm thinking, you know, way far on the northeast of Scotland, my God. Um, but you've got this weird combination of extreme, I imagine, extreme, extreme rural communities up in Grampian, but then you are in probably the hub of what I imagine to be the rough and tumble of a busy fishing port. So describe what that was actually like working there. It was certainly as a as a initial posting. It was certainly somewhere you wanted to be because it was busy. Um, uh, so so in terms of demands, um, it, 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 you were always kept really busy, um, and your bread and butter, I, I guess, would have been similar to bread and butter police work, the length and breadth of the country. So you were dealing with, as I mentioned earlier, the drug, drugs was a was a big thing. Uh, and that obviously then bleeds into lots of other crime, doesn't it? You know, lots mm. of acquisitive crime, housebreaking, or you would call in, in England burglary. Housebreaking mm. in Scotland was was huge. That was a massive, massive issue for for us at that time. And that was uh, to, um, to to some extent as a direct result of the drugs trade coming in and that mm. need for um, that need for people to to who weren't working to generate income for, to feed their habits, um, and that was the days where, um, when when they broke into houses, they really would go for it. You know, the electrical mm. goods would get taken. Mm. You know, your your mm. DVD players, your video recorders, your tellies, all that sort yeah. of stuff would go. Um, there was also um, so there was that side of it, and it the usual sort of nighttime economy issues. You know, so you would come yeah. you would come on shift on a Friday and Saturday night. There was lots of um, there was lots of sort of pubs and nightclubs, and you would get the usual sort of um, yeah. nighttime economy demands. You know, drunks and fights, and um, uh, what we found as well was that because a lot of these young guys had been off um, offshore, uh, you know, in, in small vis- fishing vessels in the middle of the North Sea for weeks on end, yeah, yeah, and yeah. had had um, faced fairly perilous uh, conditions, I'm quite sure. They would mm. come back on shore, they would get full of the booze, and then they would see this scrawny 18-year-old cop standing in front of them and think, mm-hmm. um, that's not really terribly much of a challenge, and you would get in a lot of rough and tumble. You know, you get into a lot of mm. a lot of fights, um, and uh, that's how I sort of cut my teeth there. You know, you, you just had to get, I think, as I mentioned in the book, you just have to get stuck in, and there was just that yeah. sense of roll your sleeves up um, and and prove your worth as a member of the, the team. I imagine it must be similar to a naval kind of, um, you know, some army, navy kind of um, garrison type places where you get a lot of young men, as you say, tanked up on booze, um, lots of testosterone and adrenaline, and mm. probably... The big difference between the army and navy is if these guys have probably got cash in their pockets, haven't they? Um, so, I mean, I've just looked at it on the map actually to just, just to familiarise myself where Peterhead is, and it really is right yeah. up in the middle of bloody nowhere, basically, isn't it? I mean, your yeah. nearest large town, I suppose, is Aberdeen, um, yeah. but but even that isn't exactly on your doorstep. So you really are in this little bubble of um, craziness uh, with all of this. Kind of stuff going on around you, haven't you? Yeah, and and the other thing, because of its remote uh, location, uh, as a as a young cop, it, it was a good place to learn your trade because you didn't have the luxury of having lots of specialists there to help you. So in the so in the city, so you mentioned Aberdeen. Aberdeen was a you know the, the, the sort of 
the headquarters of, of what was then Grampian Police, and they had all the resources, but that was 30 plus miles away. Hmm. And so they had their CID, they had their support units, they had their dogs, they had their, their traffic officers. Well, in a place like Peterhead, as a, as a young cop, you had to be a kind of a jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. So if you had a sudden death, uh, no one was going to come and do it for you. You had to do mm-hmm. it yourself. If you had a fatal yeah. road accident, guess what? You were investigating it. If you had mm-hmm. a, a serious assault or attempt murder, mm-hmm. you were dealing with it. So yeah. in terms yeah. of building up that experience, yeah, and that CV um, as a as a cop in those sort of uh, formative years, then it, it then then that, I, th- I guess that's why it got that reputation because it was busy, it had all the work, it had all the crime, um, and you had so much less support than you would mm. elsewhere. So you, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, it's one of those sink or swim type places. Mm-hmm. And uh, where did you go after? Obviously, it's seven or eight years there, so it's quite a long time, isn't it? Um, mm. To spend in one place, but I, I guess uh, similar to myself, I you know I was enjoying myself at that stage of my career, and I, there's no particular desire to do anything else for a while. So, what was the what was the thing that then sort of spurred you on to do something different? Well, I I tried I tried different things in my in in, in my time. So uh, there was a there was a small. CID compliment there uh, up in Peterhead. There was a, a sort of plain clothes crime team that I I'd, I'd had a bit of experience at. Um, predominantly, they did drugs, you know, put doors in and, and did drugs once. Um, and I tried all these things. I'd even done an attachment to the the traffic uh, for my sins. And um, uh, but I'd always kind of come back to that front frontline uniformed uh, constable um, role. That's what I really enjoyed doing. Mm. So I. Um, and I was keen to diversify my career. I really wanted to have a look around beyond the northeast of Scotland, beyond Grampian. And I saw that um, BTP, British Transport Police, were, were advertising for, for constables in Aberdeen, so on my doorstep. Mm. Um, I wasn't married at that point. Um, I was engaged, but no no kids. Um, so didn't have many sort of commitments to, to, to hold me back. And so I applied for BTP with a view that... Um, I would I would get to to perhaps see policing in a, a more specialist sense and also see policing in different parts of the country. Um, so after about eight years, I applied for that that um, BTP vacancy, was successful in that, spent probably just under a year in Aberdeen as a, a PC, just learning the difference um, between what, and, and there is a difference between what, the local police or the home office police in other uh, in other language does versus BTP, which is very very specialist um, mm-hmm. and and very contained to that environment. Um, and then I applied for my uh, sergeant's promotion board um, and got that and was posted to Birmingham. So I, so I went, so I went from, from I know so it was a it was a massive. Um, it was a massive change, you know, so a massive adjustment, not only promoted, but promoted to a big, a big, bustling, busy city yeah. like Birmingham. Yeah, so so for those who are listening who don't really understand um, the difference between BTP and other forces, so BTP, British Transport Police, they are effectively a national force uh, funded, correct me if I'm wrong here, funded by the rail industry itself. And they are responsible for any crime that takes place either in or near 
a train or a train station. Would that be about it? Yeah, that's that's um, that's a good summary of it. I mean, it's it, it, it's unique in many ways because it is specialist, so it, it operates in the railway environment, including you're right um, on trains and stations, and um, and the funding arrangements are. Um, it still baffle me, you know, they are quite complex. But essentially, yes, it's funded by the network rail and the train operators. Right, okay. So, yeah, bloody hell. So going from uh, northeast Scotland to Birmingham, which obviously is where I finished up my career, mm -hmm. and, and I also went to university there back in the 1980s. So, you know, I've seen Birmingham on and off over the years, uh, you know, through its different phases but the one thing that has always stayed the same is that it's a very busy place and uh, it's a bit of a hive of humanity so did you have to then move down lock stock and barrel to Birmingham? So we did so we ended up um, in Solly Hill um, which uh, for those that don't know is is um, I don't know about seven eight miles on the, on the outskirts of that. Leafy, uh, leafy suburb. Leafy suburb of, of Birmingham uh, and the, the principal reason was my wife got a job at uh, Solly Hill Hospital. So my wife's a nurse, and she got a job there. Uh, so we, so we, so we settled there, uh, and I worked in Birmingham New Street train station, which um, with BTP, which is where the police station was was located. Um, and it, and and you're right, it was it, it was and still is. I'm quite sure, just a complete different, um, different, uh, well, a different pace in terms of 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 being busy, but also different type of crime. Um, that I'd been used to. There was far more serious violent crime. So this is like 2001. Robbery was a huge thing. Car crime was a huge thing. So demand was massive, but you know, a different type of demand in some senses. Uh, police and football was huge. I mean, that was just so much of our time. Um, you know, you could get rest day working every Saturday and Sunday just doing football escorts. It was huge all yeah. over the country. Um, and 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 just straight in at the deep end. I mean, I'd obviously operated in Scotland where the the the, the legal system and the law is different. Uh, I went down to work in in, in Birmingham. I had no conversion course. I had no um, oh, really? additional God. training. It was really poor. <laughs> uh, I was given a pace a pace um, handbook, and that was left in my tray for my first day with a helmet because obviously we didn't wear helmets in Scotland. So there's a helmet and a pacebook. Welcome, right. welcome to Birmingham and with some uh, sergeant chevrons. And um, I was chucked straight in at the deep end. So it was, there was, there was a lot to learn um, as a young... So, so was, did you have a cell block at uh, New Street? We did. So I, I kind of resisted doing that custody role for a while because I thought, you know, I'm just going to expose you and me to all sorts <laughs> of grief. Um, so once I was a, a, a bit more up to speed with the legal stuff, then, yeah, I did do my stint in the. But you were as a sergeant there, you were omnicompetent. You were a response sergeant, you were a station sergeant, you were a custody sergeant, because there was only one of you on at any given time. So it was non-designated, and then they went up to Steelhouse Lane in the city centre quite smart as soon as I could get rid of them. <laughs> And train stations are such a magnet, aren't they, for weirdness? You know, there's <laughs> the, the, every type of person comes through there, don't they? You know, obviously, Mr. and Mrs. Um, law-abiding members of the public going about their coming to work and whatnot. But you get some flipping. It seems to be like a magnet. It's like it's like catnip to um, mm. people with mental health issues and uh, homeless people and all sorts of weird behaviours and train stations aren't they yeah and and i suppose i was less 
um, less aware about the mental health demand that you allude to um, back in those days, probably because there was more provision elsewhere to look after people who were in that situation. Um, but certainly, yes, it does, it does attract some strange characters. And I think part of that is that people who are particularly vulnerable or seeking help mm. know that they can go into a big train station like Birmingham New Street and there will be a cop somewhere mm. there. Mm. Whereas, you know, you could wonder the, the city streets of most, I'm not single in Birmingham out here, of most mm. city centres mm. and not bump into a cop because we don't see as many of them, you know, overtly patrolling these days. Whereas in a train station, you're more likely to see one. Yeah, it's a bit like an airport, isn't it? You're always yeah. going to see them, aren't you? So what yeah. was your relationship like with the local old bill, the local it, uh, cops? Predominantly, it was very, very positive because their, their problems were, were our problems. Um, and what we tried desperately not to do is that thing about displacement, where we would, you know, come down, bear down on a particular crime type, um, uh, you know, whether it was uh, robbery or, or or whatever. And we did get car crime as well because, you know, there's a lot of train station car parks that cars would get uh, broken into or cars would get stolen from. So there's always that sense that we had to work together. And that that sense, I think, is still there with BTP uh, and, and local force counterparts that um, it might not always be perfect, but there was, there was always that acceptance that, um, you need to you need to kind of work together because otherwise um, you could you could end up working at odds. Um, but relationships were generally good. Um, yeah, you 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 and you know BTP officers, any any BTP officer listening to this will relate that you bump into the odd cop in a local force who doesn't really understand what your role is. You know, mm. who are you? What police powers do you have? And you know all that sort of stuff and that that's more about then you have to explain and, and do a bit yeah. of that educating education stuff but by and large relationships down there were were good uh mm -hmm. no particular no particular complaints and, and anecdotally uh you know you hear that uh sadly btp officers have to deal with an awful lot of um suicides on the on the train uh network so i'm guessing that's something you probably had to deal with yourself um, and your colleagues over the years? Yeah, that, that was a and unfortunately that was a kind of constant. Um so so as a as a as a cop, um I, I would go to them as a sergeant, you would normally have to go to them. And even when I went up to to inspector, uh, there were certain uh, railway fatalities you would you would attend um if for no other reason just to show a bit of visibility and support because it's a I dealt with in 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 my 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 grandpa police days uh, lots of sudden deaths and uh, fatal road accidents which are mm. are none of them are particularly pleasant to deal with but a railway fatality without getting into the the too gory or graphic a railway fatality is um is a particularly um traumatizing potentially traumatizing and upsetting thing for even the most experienced of cops to go mm. to. Um, mm -hmm. And you see, you know, paramedics or sometimes firefighters, depending on 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 the situation, going to it, and they're they're equally quite surprised mm -hmm. because, you know, the devastation to a body by a train that's going at any speed is, you know, significant body disruption, and yeah, no yeah. one else is coming to, um, no one else is coming to clear that body up. You know, it's, no, it's left no. to the cops, and that's that's quite difficult. That's pretty grim. I can imagine from a welfare point of view, particularly for the less experienced or for that matter, even the more experienced, because these things have a habit of um, creeping up on people uh, who are 
you know, maybe very experienced, but that's half the problem, isn't it? Because they've just mm. seen too many of the bloody things. And um, so, yeah, from a welfare point of view, it's, uh, I well, I never dealt with one of those, thank God. Um, but yeah, I take my hat off to the men and women uh, mm. around the country and BTP who do sadly have to deal with those things. And um, and it's not just, in, <coughs> excuse me, it's not just in city centres, it's at, it's at um, you know, level crossings and, uh, yeah. you know, people, um, you know, taking their own lives um, in front of high-speed trains and, and out in the middle of the countryside. So it's all over the place, isn't it? But uh... Yeah, yeah. As, and, and to BTP's credit, you know, they, they did put uh, an awful lot of things uh, during my service there in place to support officers, um, you know, sort of trauma trauma support processes where mm. after they'd, officers had been to a, a railway uh, fatality, suicide-type situation, there was there was support offered to them that wasn't there when I started but certainly it's it's one of the it's one of the things about um about the job that I think we have seen progress in I mean we're still not there yet uh, mm, uh, you know mm. it's still a lot to do but in terms of just recognizing that potential yeah, impact well, of trauma, it's a tricky one and I've talked about mm. this a lot in mm. the podcast over the last two or three years is that you know you can only do so much unfortunately and the reality is that somebody's somebody has to do this stuff don't they yeah and um yeah. you know you it's uh, it's. I, mean, I can remember having quite tricky conversations with with certain PCs who, when I was a sergeant or an inspector, who who would say to me, you know, uh, I don't want to go to that, and I'd, I'd say, well, I'm sorry, but we haven't got anybody else to go to it, and um, you're it, you know, I'll come with you, but mm-hmm. um, you know, it's really it's a difficult one, isn't it? But anyway, yeah. Um, so in terms of your further sort of career um trajectory so you obviously went off and up through the ranks uh didn't you so just describe well I'm, I'm keen to talk about your thoughts on contemporary policing um and uh and, and your book so we'll just sort of but just yeah. to sort of skip skip through you know the next few ranks and where you went and what you did yeah, so so I spent about two two and a bit years in Birmingham. Then uh, went uh, sideways back back to Scotland as a sergeant. Spent some time in crime management uh, as a as a sergeant, which was was a bit different. And then from there uh, was promoted to inspector and looked after BTP's um, Edinburgh uh, police station. Um, which was which was a really which was a really great job actually. So you were kind of the uh, the king of your own castle there as the inspector. You you were you were in charge of your yeah, your police station there, and it was it was a really good posting. Um, I was keen then um, to maybe after about again eighteen months a year eighteen months to do something a bit different. Um, I was encouraged by my superintendent at the time to go for a a, a staff officer job, which I had really not particularly uh, ever considered but it was the uh, carrot that was dangled if I wanted to become a chief inspector that you know you, you've done too much operational stuff you need to do something a bit more strategic so I became a staff officer to an assistant chief constable and again did that for about 18 months and that was a bit of an eye-opener just in terms of the um, the, the strategic and the political world mm. with a small p um, yeah. that you get exposed to and from there was promoted chief inspector operations. And I spent a long time as a chief inspector because you hit that bottleneck. You did in BTP Scotland where, mm. and by that time I was married with kids and, and moving was, was not really an option. 
So I spent a number of years as a chief inspector and did a few different jobs, uh, did all the jobs actually, including the crime, uh, chief inspector crime, which was CID and Intel, covert policing. Um, and then in 2016, uh, I was promoted to superintendent uh, and became the operations superintendent for BTP in Scotland. So in terms of the command structure, just to put that into perspective, in BTP Scotland, there's a chief superintendent and a superintendent. Uh, and then uh, what well, varies, but normally it's about three chief inspectors is your kind of top top uh, tier. Um, so that was a great job being the the, the sort of super uh, in BTP Scotland. Um, so, I'm, so I'm guessing that um, you know the chief superintendent, as they tend to be, and this isn't a criticism of chief superintendent; it's just a, a observation based on experience that they tend to get drawn into quite a lot of sort of strategic stuff that doesn't give them much opportunity to get hands-on with the operational stuff, which tends to get left to superintendents, doesn't it? So effectively, that sounds like you were operationally in charge of BTP Scotland, really. Yeah, that, that's exactly as you describe. So the, the first chief superintendent I worked for um, was was a, a real strategic um, player. And he had to be because it was a time where um, there was a sort of takeover bid where Police Scotland were were trying to through the Scottish government at Scottish government's direction absorb BTP Scotland into the into the new organisation of you like, um, so the chief super that time was 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 pretty much committed to all those strategic bits, mm-hmm. um, which were even more pronounced then because of everything that was going on. So I was I was the day to day if you like, um, as mm-hmm. super the day to day, head of head of the division operationally. Uh, and that that was great. I mean, the chief super still took a lot of interest, and I, you know, I brief him on the things that needed to be kept up to speed on. But day to day, he just left me to to get on mm-hmm. with it, and which made it a really good job, actually. Yeah, and that's often the best way, isn't it, really? But yeah. uh, so so listen, um, what well, just to box off your kind of career, because then you took a proper um sort of slightly uh, an interesting. Uh, left or right turn, depending which you want to do, because you ended up at the College of Policing doing stuff around police performance. Which I remember, I remember when you started that role. I remember you putting it out on LinkedIn, thinking, "Bloody, hell, that's a bit of a, that's a bit of a uh, uh, interesting decision at that stage of your career." So, what was it that took you down that road? Well, I'd been a superintendent for, um, I think, by that point, uh, six years, um, and. Uh, I suppose I still enjoyed it, but by that time I I was on my third chief superintendent, and um, I I suppose you become a little bit um, worn and weary, um, not so much of the job, but just of some of the the changes and some of the politics that we might I suppose discuss a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. So it felt like the right time at that point to go and apply for something different. I mean, there was a there was there was a, t- a temporary promotion in the offering as well, which always helps, particularly as you're motoring towards the end of your service. Mm-hmm. So, and it was performance um, related, and I'd always been sort of big into performance management. I've kind of been brought up as a a, a senior officer, if you like, in 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 that sort of era, um, whether we liked it or not, of of performance targets and reds mm-hmm. and greens and mm-hmm. um, all that sort of stuff. And um, so I was kind of used to that. Plus, I must say that 
at that point, I could see that the service is starting to um, go in the wrong direction in many respects. So I thought, well, mm. if I can, sounds a bit cheesy, doesn't it? But I thought mm. if I can give it even a little bit back in the last mm. couple of years of my career, yeah. um, then then that would be that would be something I'd be interested to do. So I applied for that job, uh, was interviewed, and 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 was successful for it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's good. I did a little spell just for 12 months at the College of Policing. Must, must admit, I really enjoyed it. But, you know, that was a long, long time ago and it was a very sort of time limited project. But um, so let's let's come on to talk about um, your book. So I was really uh, I was very pleased, actually, to see that you'd written a book. Um, I'm always pleased to see anyone writing a book because um, <laughs> I know I know how much work uh, goes into it. And uh it's um it's a it's a real sort of labor of love um so just talk to me about uh so the book's called um oh god this is terrible now i i, um, I, I did buy it though there as well um sorry remind me remind me the title of the book that's terrible isn't it i should know shouldn't I? so so it's called the fall of policing, that's it, the fall um, of policing that's and it. uh the, the subtitle is uh when woke cancelled the british bobby um so there's a there's so a that's about, a really a... so so the fall of policing went woke cancelled the British yes. Bobby. So, yeah. so that's a real unambiguous kind of um uh, smack in the face really title, isn't it? I mean there's no there's no there's no you know second guessing what that book is about. Um so, which I and I and I genuinely take my hat off to you for that because I did exactly the same with Tiger Juliet Foxtrot. Anyone mm -hmm. who understood what TJF stands for, you know, will have instantly known where I was coming from. Um, so, so yeah, really good that you got you got that out there straight away. So, tell me what um, prompted you to write the book. Um, that's a really good question, and um, I suppose there was a few reasons. For First of all, I wanted to just put down on paper my thoughts and considerations about where things have gone wrong over the last 30 years. Um, so there was a little bit of documenting it while it was all still pretty fresh in my head. Um, I didn't actually, when I started typing this stuff up, I didn't at that point know it was going to turn into a book. It was more just... Um, I don't know what you would describe it as um, a memoir or I don't I don't know um, and then as I was writing it and began to put a bit of structure to it I, I thought well it might it might be interesting to those within policing who perhaps um, see have seen the same things or those who are even not in policing and who wonder how the hell we've got into this position where the British Police Service is is now so um, apparently poorly regarded and getting even the basics so wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose that's where it sort of moved from just a bit of a personal project to I'm going to try and um, put this out as a uh, as a book. Uh, and it's only been out for for just over a week. Uh, it's doing you know it's doing pretty well on Amazon. Um, I'm 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 pleased to say, and I've had I've had quite a bit of feedback both. You know, people leaving reviews and people just contacting me um, about it. So yeah, so that's that's how it came to be, I suppose. Yeah, no, I'm only about three or four chapters into it, um, but I'm really enjoying it. And um, yeah, it resonates very strongly with 
with uh, with what I wrote and uh, with you know what I think as well as well as as I know for a fact. Um, most, you know, serving police officers, on sadly. Um, but um, so did you? Um, you're obviously you're obviously expressing as I did. Um, some quite strong views, some quite controversial. Not controversial. Is it controversial? Actually, I know I'm going to challenge myself on that. I don't think it actually is controversial because I think it would be controversial to say that the police are doing a really good job. That would be controversial. Um, what what I was saying and what I think you're saying as well is that the police are not doing a good job. And, and there's, there's lots of reasons for that. Um, and I don't actually believe that it's the fault of most police officers. <laughs> so is that, does, that, does that seem like a fair comment? Yeah, it does. Um, you know, I, I, I sort of express, I think, through the book, three things, three key issues, um, so, some of which you might describe as um, well, you could describe them as controversial, maybe a bit provocative. The, the, fir the first is, um, I think, plain for a lot of people, both in and outside policing, to see, which is that um, lack of a sense of mission now in the police. You know, and I take it back, the reason I only go through 30 years is because of, I did 30 years in my career, but I wanted to just describe what I see as the changes during, during those three decades. And certainly when I joined the police, and there might be a bit of, you know, you, you, you put on the rose-tinted specs here. Um, but when I joined the police, the sense of mission was pretty clear. Mm. You you were there to look after the good people, lock up the bad people. Mm. Um, you were given the, the the tools to do it. You were given the discretion to do it. And your professionalism was, was trusted with, I think, far less interference um, from others who were maybe sitting on the sidelines, including politicians and others. So I think that's... That's the first thing. Um, the second thing is probably the most um, potentially provocative, and that is this uh, unwavering obsession, particularly over the last decade or so, over diversity, um, equality and inclusion, mm. um, which has, in my opinion, in my estimations, has become an obsession, and it's led to a climate of... Um, more mediocrity than meritocracy in mm. how leaders particularly are selected and developed. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I'm I'm very clear in the book, and I'll be very clear here, there is absolutely nothing wrong with DEI um, if it's properly applied, properly defined. Uh, I think diversity is great. I think that um, we should recognise and appreciate more diversity of personality and background, I think, more than that sort of narrower spectrum mm. that um, we do tend to look at traditionally of, you know, race and sex and sexual orientation. That's very optics driven to me. But the, the diversity of personality and diversity of background is, is probably the bit that we don't talk enough about. Um, and that leads me to the whole equity thing, which is more equality of outcome than it is of opportunity so this is where um it promotes that culture of the oppressed versus the oppressor mentality which is that whole thing about you know identity politics and then you get a little bit of resentment you get you know and i mentioned this in the book comments made like you know you've got to move over it's our time now mm. um uh, you know inferring that one side you know who have been considered 
you know, traditionally advantage now has to be disadvantaged. It's it, it's mm. it's not a very nice climate at all. And I think this is where diversity, equity, and inclusion really misfires. Yeah. And then the final thing, um, just to 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 to, to sort of finish that off was um, poor and inexperienced leadership. I think underpins all of this, and all these things are interconnected. But poor and inexperienced leadership is certainly a real issue for the police service now. Mm. Um, and I've I've had my eyes open to that, particularly in the last couple of years. Um, and I think that is a problem that the service really needs to get a grip of. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot in there, and um, and I don't I don't fundamentally disagree with any of it. Um, I think uh the you're absolutely right i i i tend to believe and a lot of people would 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 um shout me down if i said this but i i tend to believe that the police was always a lot more diverse than than the public or the media gave it credit for and i think it had a lot more diversity of thought um when i first joined than when i left um when I left, there was a there was a certain way that you were expected to see the world, and if you know, and if you challenged that accepted view of the world, then you were just uh, either at 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 best ignored, or or at worst bullied and punished, um, and that's not me personally. That is that is across a lot of people. Um, who were very experienced, there was there was a very much a, a, a one way of looking at the world, and that was through the lens of, um, uh, yeah, that that sort of uh, in a rather sort of culture wars way of seeing things. Um, and it's interesting because when I speak to when I speak to people in the military now, they tend to say something very similar that mm. actually that actually um, the military was a lot more diverse in terms of the, the 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 type of people the backgrounds of people the that there was there was room for people to disagree agreeably um whereas uh it te- feels like a lot of these organizations now and i think it's probably very similar in the health service very similar in education there is there is this kind of cookie cutter way of seeing the world that is very how would you describe it? Rather dehumanizing, I think. There's a dehumanizing way that people are not allowed to have their own views and beliefs and opinions about things unless they are the those mm-hmm. that are kind of encouraged and you know supported by the the organization. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, in terms of did, did you? I mean, because you were straight out of the traps with this book, weren't you? I mean, literally, you were what two or three weeks after. Leaving yeah. the organisation, whereas I had, I had probably, oh, how long? Maybe twelve, eighteen months after leaving before I actually put the book anywhere near a publisher. So, did you have any concerns that that um, you know you would uh, get people's hackles up uh, so soon after leaving? Um, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. Uh, and I think if if you do get people's hackles up. It's because you probably um, told them something of the truth that's maybe been a little bit uncomfortable for them. Mm. Um, and I'm a great advocate of free speech. And I think that um, we need to have conversations, even about 
some of the more sensitive topics. So if it's mm. about how the police service um, invokes its diversity, equity and inclusion policies and what we think the negative impact of that might be. So that mm. that stuff that you've spoken about. So to, mm. you know, take away the whole uh, impact it might have on um, uh, the optics of um, people being progressed in the service who might not have the necessary skills or qualifications because the optics uh, are good. But that whole climate of um, where you feel that you are your one comment or one conversation away from a disciplinary notice mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. you might say or offend the wrong person. Mm -hmm. It's not then a, a climate and culture where you feel that you can have those debates and discussions and those healthy debates and discussions that mm -hmm. are necessary, whether it's about um, operational policing matters, whether it's about DEI policies, whether it's, whether it's about what's the correct or optimal way to select uh, and scale up leaders at all levels of the police service. We should be in a position where we can have these conversations Ian, without feeling that we're going to be um, penalised for it, we're going to be uh, censored, um, or that um, ultimately um, mm -hmm. that you can be labelled as something of a... Um, you know, dinosaur. an intolerant dinosaur, or <laughs> yeah. you know, and I, I, one of the anecdotes in the book is is around, and I think it was one of the first displays of social conscience that the police wanted to, 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 um, to, to, to participate in, was the whole uh, LGBT pride thing. You know, where cops would, you know, get out and march in full uniform and put the rainbow paints on their faces and all that sort of stuff. And um, I know a lot of senior colleagues, I was a chief inspector when this conversation happened, and a lot of senior colleagues used to do it every every, every Pride Month, um, they would be out there marching and all that sort of stuff. And I was asked, you know, why, why don't you do it? And I said, well, I don't do it because I don't believe the police should be getting involved in these um, social justice political causes, no matter what mm. they are, no matter how well-intended, mm. how noble they are. I just don't think it's right. And I don't think it's a good use of taxpayers' money for the police mm. and me as a senior officer to be going out on a Saturday yeah. marching about yeah. like that. Now, that's a, that's a personal opinion. Um, mm. But you could tell by the response I got that was mm, maybe not quite be, as progressive, you need, Dave. You need to be sent off. You need to be sent off for reprogramming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I've, always, I've always had a bit of a big gob, you know, and I've, I've always... I've never had that ability to, to... My face gives it away, and if it doesn't give it away, certainly my speech will, you know. And I've always just felt that, you know, particularly when you're put in a senior leadership position, um, your opinion should matter for something. And if yeah. you see something that's going on that you don't agree with, yeah, yeah. you should you should see it. Um, yeah. So yeah, so I think that whole that whole climate um, of um, there, there's that climate of 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 a lack of ability to um, express yourself without consequence. I guess. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and that, not, that's just what you. It's not. Uh, it's not healthy, is it? It's not healthy in a in in a in a. In an organisation where we're trusting people to make life or death decisions mm. um, uh, with very imperfect information uh, available to them to do that, yeah. to, to, to then censor them for expressing an opinion that isn't the 
approved opinion because mm. this is a this is a relatively you know we need to remember this is a relatively new thing isn't it this um and, and i suppose i suppose what i'd say would be well let's look at the evidence of how this is working out for you now um because it's not working out very well is it by any definition and i suppose you know in truth the there are reasons there are other reasons for that aren't there and it's yeah. it's tricky sometimes to disentangle what is bad performance as a result of an obsession with identity politics mm. and 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 far too much virtue signaling and taking your eye off the ball around what is important to your average member of the public so that's one thing isn't it um and then what is bad performance as a result of excessive interference from politicians withdrawal of resources and funding um and and i suppose i suppose i tend to see it as being it's not one or either it's both isn't it i think it's it's a bit of a perfect storm in that at the same time that we had huge um you know re reduction in funding um there then was simultaneously an obsession with identity politics virtue signaling um getting involved in other areas of public sector um life particularly around mental health um that then distracted and took cops away from doing the things that most normal members of the public would expect them to be doing does that make sense yeah and i i think um i think you're totally spot on with that analysis i think it's it's a it's a combination of factors that goes back to that um uh, the devastating cuts under under cameron and and, and me and i don't think the services really ever despite boris's best endeavors to recruit more cops um, under the uplift program. I don't think the service has ever really recovered from that. So I do agree that there are lots of factors at play, including the funding cuts, including um, the, the repeated um, political interference in, in policing. I agree with all that. And the impact of demand, non-crime demand, non-policing demand actually, where we've had to take on the role of other services, most uh, notably mental health provision. I agree with all that. And for me, it's the things that the, the police service and the leadership of the police service, though, can influence certain things more than they can others. Okay, so the big, the big hitter political decisions, you could argue that the, the, the you know, the service could have stood up to that more. But I think, you know, the die had been cast there when, when Cameron and May got together, who were, you know, as you allude to in your book, I think, you know, notoriously uh, not not supporters of the police, and uh, at the first opportunity, give it give us a good wallop uh, in terms of the, those cuts. Um, but I think the things that the police can sort are, are some of the things I discuss in the book, which is, you know, that definitely that sense of mission. Yeah, that that could be a bit interdependent on, you know. You know, government buy-in and 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 you know what the HMIC are doing and what NPCC are doing, the National Police Chiefs Council. But restoring that sense of mission, I think, is important. Part of that is properly managing to step away from the demand that has come onto the service, 
which we ought not to have. And my my fear of that is now that we've had it for the last 10 years or so, trying to get rid of it is mm. going to be difficult. Yeah. And all the while, uh, cops are coming in, joining the service, and all they know is, you know, a, a hefty chunk of their days spent dealing with mental health demand yeah. and not dealing with crime. Constant watches. So I think that's 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 something that, that can to some extent be sorted. The the DEI stuff, I think, definitely can be sorted. I think part of that is, if I'm being perfectly blunt, is a little bit of self-flagellation. And mm. I say that because you know the police has been repeatedly kicked, going back to Stephen Lawrence mm. and right up to the more recent um tragedy of of, of Sarah Everard's murder. Um, where we are, you know, we're racist, we're misogynistic, we're homophobic, we're all all sorts of discrimination. Mm. And so I think that this whole obsession with identity politics and display of our social conscience has been in some ways uh, an attempt to demonstrate to the public that we are not all that bad. Um, I don't think most of the public see it that way, I have to say. I never did. I thought it was a misguided approach. Um, and I thought it did straddle that line of um, police neutra- neutrality and independence, all this, you know, taking the knee and all that sort of stuff, I thought was, was just a step too far. So that can be sorted, I think. It's going to need... The problem we have is that a lot of the people who occupy these chief officer roles now have been a product of that yeah. whole, that whole, yeah. Yeah. Um, that yeah. whole uh, <laughs> system. And the service, the police service, tends to promote in its own image. And that brings me on to leadership then. The service definitely can sort out leadership, but it's going to take an almighty effort on the part of lots of other players to make that so, uh, including the College of Policing and others who are who are going to have to get to to to, to grips with that. None of this is, you know, I'm, in the book I do come up with, you know, some proposals around solutions, you know, but I don't have all the answers. But I think policing has the answers if it would just put its mind to it. Yeah, no, I totally agree, and yeah, the the point you make about um. You know, many of the people who are now in the most senior positions in policing nationally um, were the architects of yes. getting getting us to where we currently are. And on that basis, um, uh, nothing's going to change while those while that thinking is still in place. Because unless they have a, a massive, huge collective conversion on the road to Damascus, which I'm not going to hold my breath on on that happening. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's, as you know, there's some absolutely f- fabulous chief constables out there. There's some fantastic um, leaders uh, uh, who are very committed to public service and, and and who are also fantastic police officers, whether that is, you know, from a public order, firearms, crime investigation, counterterrorism, whatever, uh, who, are, who, are, who are really, really experienced and, and incredibly good at what they do and... W- but there just aren't enough of them. They are, mm. I think, probably outnumbered now, sadly, by those who have uh, been busy burnishing their politically correct credentials to the detriment of the day job. And um, and it's going to be very tricky uh, to, and again, as you say, they tend to promote in their own image. So a lot mm. of people further on down the pecking order at sort of Chief Inspector, and I think probably the, ki- the critical role, the critical rank for me around make, turning the police service back into something that has actually got the credibility in the eyes of the public is probably at Inspector Chief Inspector rank. I think, I think if you 
if you promote the right people who have got really strong operational credibility uh, into the ranks of inspector, chief inspector, particularly chief inspector, because that's the stepping stone, as you know, to superintendent, then you're you're creating a really strong pipeline of good quality candidates to become the next chief officers. But if you keep promoting in the image of this sort of rather um, pathetic, I think that's probably the word that I would use, weak, weak and slightly misguided mm-hmm. thinking around what the police are there to do, then this is going to take another 40 or 50 years to sort out. It isn't going to be sorted out quickly, is it? No, and 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 the biggest losers in all of this uh, are the public. And um, I, I think the public definitely deserve much better from its from its police service. But if it's not being led in the way that puts public service and the restoration of that mission of, you know, preventing and detecting crime, I know that police is more complex than that. And I know there's an awful lot more to it. And particularly as time goes, has gone on, you know, it's become more complex around, certainly around vulnerability demand and then, you know, the cyber stuff that, the, you know, we're having to, to adjust to in terms of the, 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 the crime that's been committed in that space. But I think the public have an expectation that the police are going to be there to respond to their, to their, their needs, that it's not too much to expect that when you ring the police to say that your house has been broken into, that you're going to actually get a cop turn up at your door and take a bit of an interest. Mm. That if you're the you know, owner or manager of a retail premises, if you have people stealing from you and shoplifting, that you're going to get a cop to turn up. Um, I think those are the basics that we have somehow lost. Some of that is down to imported demand, and some of that is just simply down to um, that sense of mission creep and that indulgence in in other in other things and you know one of the other things i talk about in the book is that obsession with you know the policing of of speech mm-hmm. um and that whole non-crime hate incident stuff which again you know the amount of demand that was then put on policing and an expectation mm-hmm. that because of a a tweet you know, or a post on social media someone had taken offence to would then go and conduct some sort of investigation uh, into that. All these thing can, things combined take policing away from, I think, its core role of mm-hmm. public but service. The, but, this is, but this is where um, this is where the Home Office and, uh, you know, government have got a massive role to play, that mm-hmm. with the stroke of a pen, literally the stroke of a pen, they could change the crime recording standards to create a much more sensible, um, prioritised framework within which the police can work. But uh, you know and I know that those crime recording standards are policed very zealously, uh, very overzealously, uh, internally within the force by their own crime auditors, Mm -hmm. um, because they know that uh, that's what the Home Office expect. And then you've got, um, you know, and Mr. Cook, Andy Cook, the Chief Inspector of Constabulary, can say what he likes about the need to, every, for everybody to pull their socks up. But until the Home Office actually, um, you know, create a 
framework within which police can operate that actually genuinely reflects the priorities of the public, then nothing's going to change because all that's going to happen is that the Home Office will beat the force chief constables over the head or the PCCs will beat the chief constables over the head on behalf of the Home Office because their data quality isn't complying with uh, what the Home Office expects. So, you know, I do get really frustrated about this and I've been banging on about it for a long, long time, way, way back to, you know, the mid sort of 2000s. But nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. And, you know, the amount of effort and energy that gets expended by frontline officers and particularly frontline supervisors around policing the data quality issues is just yeah. unbelievable. Now, I may be slightly out of touch with that, but I don't think I am, you know. No, I, 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 no, you're right. And again, we we are still living with the impact of of um, of the cuts um, back in 2010. And forces had to make decisions when they lost so much cash and the ability to to recruit. And one of one of the things that I've seen as I've kind of you know gone around and looked at some forces is that part of that decision making was well intended. I think is to try and prioritise the front line, um, albeit neighbourhood policing functions tended to be the first to be stripped in the front line uniform um, uh, sort of roles. Um, but a lot of the back office stuff got, got stripped out, mm. which, you know, so your sort of crime management, your crime recording uh, sort of people. And that puts even more demand onto the frontline officers who, mm. you know, in one sense, we say, well, you've, you've got you've got all this technology now. You know, every cop's got a mobile phone that they can access all their systems and input all their reports into. But the onus on them and first line managers, so the sergeants, to do a lot of data quality checking, as you said, mm. a lot of administration that would previously have been done by other parts of the organisation. Oh yeah, a whole bloody department. Yeah, yeah, but but that whole demand now because some forces made those decisions to mm. to not invest in that back office stuff mm. has led to more more and more pressure being put onto frontline cops, particularly supervisors who are mm. carrying you know sergeants permanently who are carrying so much administrative burden now, which mm. means and inspectors, which means. They're not doing that job as well as they could of being visible, being out there, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder with our cops, you know, mm. going to incidents, doing what you said about, you know, I'll, mm. I'll come with you if it's your first time doing a death message or your first time going to a really mm. horrible RTA, I'll be with. They're tied to computers, they're tied to desks because they're picking up so much of that admin function. So mm. that is a real problem that the service somehow need to unburden themselves of. Mm. Um, and there's no there's no easy answer to it because some of these decisions have now been made been made, and they're now set in organisational structures that it would take quite a bit of work, decisions yeah. and investment to to turn it around. Yeah, and it's the IT as well. The IT, whether we like it or not, has been configured to service a, a particular way of working, uh, mm. and that's a way of working which has been uh, demonstrated to be incredibly inefficient uh out of debt uh, and not doing what the public want us to be doing so uh, inevitably the technological tail wags the organizational dog doesn't it um so 
Uh, and we all know how painful it is to uh, reconfigure police IT systems mm. and how expensive that is. So again, that's another part of the jigsaw, isn't it? So you can change, you could change the crime recording or the incident recording um, process uh, to bring it more in line with what the public want, but you're still shackled with IT systems that reflect a out of date way of working on you. Yeah, and and I think I think you were you said earlier about you know um, the, the, there is a role here for government. Um, there's a big role here for government, but I think what we've 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 seen over the years is that you know policing is still in some ways the favourite toy, isn't it? The favourite toy set of home secretaries and governments, and all they've done is toyed and tinkered with it and never made a particularly huge impact, you know, for the better, a positive mm. impact. Mm. I mean, I think no matter what some people might say about, you know, Suella Braverman, I think she did have some of them worried that she was going to impose some changes. I mean, she talked mm. about, you know, the, the invo involvement in identity politics and the need for better neutrality and service to the public and mandated the whole, you know, you will attend every domestic burglary in person, you know. And mm. I think her intrusion, well, it, I know it didn't sit well. Um, it didn't sit well with policing. It didn't sit well with um, chief officers. Um, and that whole notion of her treading over the line into operational independence of chiefs was definitely questioned. Um, mm. But the, the question for me should have been, why did a Home Secretary feel she had to make those comments mm. and make those interventions? So you can you can in one sense you can say well politics shouldn't be interfering in policing and I fundamentally agree in the notion of constabulary independence I think it's important but in another sense if a home secretary is having to make those interventions and do them so publicly there's good reason for that now some of that might be you know political that she mm. could sense the mood music of the public mm. um, but nonetheless a lot of what Braverman said. I think did resonate with many, many people in the service. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, I was never a particular fan of Suella Braverman, um, but I think she was, uh, she ultimately, um, you know, posed a threat to uh, Rishi Sunak uh, with her ambition and sort of galvanizing the right wing of the party. Um, and that's probably the reason why she got sacked. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Even, even people you disagree with are correct. <laughs> Uh, sometimes, and uh, mm. even Bor even Boris from time to time was correct, you know. <laughs> uh, but anyway, listen, um, very dangerous territory to stray into, isn't it? But uh, yeah, indeed. <laughs> the current climate. But um, listen, um, in terms of what you're doing now, you've you've started um, a lecturing role at the University of the West of Scotland. Is that right? I have. Well, I I actually start um, later this week, so I am going to be lecturing in criminology and criminal justice, um, which I am I'm really excited about. Um, uh, I had I had almost envisaged, you know, when when I retired, that having that period of a a few months to put my feet up and um, uh, and and do very little. Um, uh, but I'm not going to get the opportunity. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of straight, almost straight in after just a few weeks. But that mm. actually suits me fine. Um, I'm, I'm quite happy to be uh, and fortunate to have that opportunity and have secured that role. Um, University of West of Scotland uh, uh, 
are um, a good, you know, well standing in terms of their delivery of criminal justice and criminology in particular. So it, it's it's really exciting to be joining that team. Um, and uh, up till now, they've been absolutely fantastic in terms of just that orientation from having been in the cops for 30 odd years to then coming into a new um, a new environment. Just that whole sort of sense of um, uh, you know change and orientation into that new role has been has yeah. been excellent. Uh, so I, I I am really looking forward to it. And is that a full time role? Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be full time. Um, uh, and uh, I'm going to be teaching on both the the undergraduate and postgraduate courses. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm 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 really looking forward to that. And again, you know, I, I suppose you you hopefully can contribute something after after so long in the job and seeing so much change. Um, uh, not that it's going to be a stand in your soapbox and as you say, swing the lamp and you mm. know uh, talk about some amusing uh, anecdotes of your past career. It's not about that, but it is hopefully about bringing some of that experience. Um, to discuss some of the issues within contemporary police and some of which we've touched on here, that those that are studying, you know, criminal justice, criminology, uh, policing, uh, I think really want to get to, to, to grips with. So I'm looking forward to contributing positively. Oh, I'm sure you'll be a, a massive a massive asset to them, I've no doubt whatsoever. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I get, I get a lot of uh, very lovely emails and messages from student officers around the country listen to the podcast and uh, I know that they really benefit from listening to people like you and I talking people uh, the other guests that I've had on you know they've learned a lot and um, you can probably learn more from listening to two old sweats <laughs> as long as they're not just telling each other war stories because you know war stories are are fun and interesting but it, it they don't fundamentally teach anyone anything whereas I think uh, the value that a lot of the student officers get from this podcast, I think, is to listen to the likes of you and I talking about some of those wider issues, uh, the reasons why things are as they are, because everything happens for a reason, doesn't it? Um, yeah, and I and I'm I'm always always of a mind that it's not simply standing on the sidelines and 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 criticising because we've all worked with people over the years. Um, uh, that used the term that, that is the title of your book um, that from day one in the job um, mm, and they will yeah. criticise and they will complain and never really come up with any sort of solutions or meaning, you know, suggestions mm. or a meaningful change or contribute towards that. Mm. Um, and I've always been of a mind that, you know, if you, if you observe that things aren't right, then you need to be prepared to step forward and mm. be part of that change and bring forward some of those solutions and I've, I've kind of always tried to do that it's not always well received if it's going against the grain you know you know in terms of the you know you're you're Dave you're, you're going against the accepted narrative here so wind your neck in um mm -hmm. but I think we've still got a duty to do that and yeah. and you know I'm going to continue to do that and um, mm -hmm. because I'm still very passionate about policing as I know you are from the outside now looking mm -hmm. in and mm -hmm. um, that it's 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 not so much about criticizing it's about pointing out the things that are that are wrong and there's a there's a lot wrong but there's mm -hmm. a lot still good about policing and some of the, mm -hmm. the the stuff that policing does day and daily is that doesn't get the headlines and doesn't get reported on is tremendous and those frontline cops who turn up for work you know every day eh, despite having 
you know, the pressures that they've got on them, the demand of other agencies, frankly, the crap leadership that we've seen mm. um, across the service that still mm. continue to come out and roll yeah. their sleeves up and deal with the, the dirty and the dangerous, mm. I think is a testament to them. Um, so, you know, I still think it's a great job. I just think mm. there's stuff in it that, yeah. that needs to be changed. Yeah, no, I totally, totally agree. And uh, I've no doubt that the students that you will be working with will will derive great um, insights from from your from your uh, experience. But listen, my friend, we're we're about an hour and a quarter, so it's probably not a bad time to wrap things up. But um, listen, I wish you very the very best um, with uh, you know the stuff that you're going to be doing, and I'll just give you a final shout out for your book. And apologies for getting the. Uh, I had a bit of a grey moment there. So The Fall of Policing, When Woke Cancelled the British Bobby by Dave Marshall. So it's on Amazon. And uh, yeah, you're getting lots of five-star reviews already, which is which is great to see. Um, yes, and I shall look forward to uh, to finishing it. I, I tend to read about three or four books all at once. Uh, not, not at the same time I listen to it, but uh, I uh, have three or four books on the go, and that's one of it, one of them at the moment. So... Uh, Listen, uh, you take care. Um, very best of luck. And I suppose a bit of, um, I'm not your dad, but my advice I would be giving you from someone who finished, um, you know, well, nearly five years ago now for me is um, don't um, don't expect it to be all plain sailing. Um, you know, you're going to have some highs and lows in the next sort of two or three years. And another bit of advice I would give you would be um, don't feel that, the thing that you've decided that you want to do has to be the thing. It might be not the thing. Um, it's taken me, I've kissed a few frogs over the last few years, um, finding myself now in a very, very good place work-wise, but uh, yeah, it hasn't always been that way. So, so yeah, just um, enjoy your freedom um, and don't feel that you have to do anything for anyone now. You know, if it doesn't work out, don't be afraid to, to bin it off. I'm sure you won't. No, that's that's great advice. And uh, you did you didn't mention going on a cruise. Everyone seems to say, Dave, when when you you know when the pension comes to go on a cruise. But no, I've pre- I've really enjoyed the, the the conversation, Ian. It's it's uh, it's been really good to to chat to you. And I do hope that that those listening to, I mean, I, I'm always um, always of a view that you might you might not always agree with everything people say. But um, hopefully it still is um, a little bit insightful and a little bit enlightening. And uh, yeah, no, yeah. Not, not everybody's going to agree with everything we say, are they? But I think the evidence of failure, sadly, is overwhelming yeah. at the moment. And uh, you can either uh, commit to doing something about it and listening to the criticism, or you can do more of the same. So if you do more of the same, well, don't be too surprised what's going to happen. So Indeed. All right, my friend. Listen, you take care. Have a good evening, and um, I'll stick this out. I'll, I'll drop you. I'll drop you a note. Uh, I'll drop you a text or whatever, or a message, um, uh, just before it goes out, and I'll cool. tag tag you on LinkedIn. Thank you very much. Been a pleasure. It's a great pleasure. Thanks ever so much. Cheers, Thanks. Dave. Enjoy the rest of your night. Cheers. Thank you Thanks very much. Bye bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>
Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his feet. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town.